Father, um, we are reminded of how we as, as a humanity are not worthy of the goodness and the grace that you give to us. Lord, uh, your grace is your idea. Uh, it, it is your provision. Uh, it, it is something that we aren't even aware of needing in our sin. Uh, in our sin, it is something that we are need, not even uh, cognizant of needing to reach out for from you because we don't see anything wrong with ourselves. We see you as the problem. We see the way that people have portrayed you as the problem when we are in our sin. We object to any sort of, of righteous, holy God when we are in our sin. It's so amazing, Father, uh, that you would choose to show your grace even while we are sinners. That even while we are sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And Lord, we are grateful, we are expectant of what you, the gracious God, will choose to further do in us because you could have given us your grace and walked away, but you gave us yourself. You gave us yourself to indwell us, to fill us, uh, for us to walk in, to walk by. And Lord, we pray that you would do that here this morning, that you would allow us to walk by your Spirit according to the truth that we see, that you'd allow us to dig the lies out of our minds and live by your truth that it would change our lives, Father. So Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to admit to you, I, I wasn't all that excited to preach on the Noahic covenant today. God's covenant with Noah and really God's, God's covenant with all of mankind represented by, by Noah and his family. It, it's, it's a... It's something I didn't necessarily get any uh, more excited about as the week went on, to tell you the truth. But God, in his graciousness, uh, brings me to his word here this morning, uh, both in the grace that I see just this morning in my relationship with him, but, but in my relationship with you, to bring to you the message that he has laid on us as harvest. Ninth, uh, 1816... Uh, came up a few times in our uh, discussions of of the flood and and um, uh, world catastrophes and things like that and what they do. You see, not 1816 is known as the year without a summer. And, and I was drawn to look into this a little bit. It was it was fascinating to me. 1816 was the year without a summer. It, it was a summer like like no other that people could remember. Snow during the summer fell in New England. Gloomy, cold rains fell throughout Europe. It was cold and stormy and dark. Uh, What was going on in in North America and in Europe, uh, these these causes of these strange changes to the light of day only grew... As, uh, and so it was darker, it was colder, and scientists 
uh, discovered sunspots on the sun at this time, look, looking for the causes of these things, or, or maybe it just correlated with what was going on. And, and they were so large, these sunspots, that they could be seen by the naked eye. Okay? And newspapers such as the London Chronicle reported on the panic that was going across Europe and, and North America. They're talking about the, the large spots, this is from the London Chronicle of 1816. The large spots which may now be seen upon the sun's disk have given rise to ridiculous apprehensions and absurd predictions. These spots are said to be the cause of the remarkable and wet weather that we have had this summer. And the increase of these spots is represented to announce a general removal of heat from the globe. The extinction of neighbor. I'm sorry. A general removal of heat from the globe. In other words, heat is no longer going to be coming to the earth. An extinction of nature and the end of the world. Well, it wasn't sunspots that were creating this this a year without any summer, and it was, was known in 1816. It was Mount Tambora in Indonesia that had uh, began to erupt in, on April 15th of 1815, the year before, and over four months exploded. And it's, rec- it's the largest volcanic explosion re- in recorded history. It ejected so much ash and aerosols into the atmosphere that the sky darkened and the sun was blocked from view across Europe and North America. The smallest particles spewed by the volcano, you see, you see it spread through the atmosphere over the following months and it had a worldwide effect on climate. Crops were killed in um, Europe and North America either by uh, frost or lack of sunshine and, and it caused food to be scarce. Some farmers that, that actually did have a crop, they were, they were worried that their neighbors were going to be coming and stealing their food. Food was becoming so scarce. It's, uh, Lord Byron attributed this, his poem, Darkness, to this summer uh, of 1816 and the apprehension that was across the land saying, uh, he quote, he wrote it on a dark day on which the fowls went to roost at noon and candles were lit as at midnight. His, his poem, Darkness, if you ever want to get depressed, read it. It says, I had a dream which was not, at not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and thin, and the icy earth swung blind and blackened in the moonless air. Morn came and went and came and brought no day, and men forgot their passions in the dread. Of this their desolation, and all hearts were chilled into a selfish, selfish prayer for light. And they did live by watchfires. He goes on, and, he, and he's going on explaining uh, theoretically what, could happen what would it look like if the if the world was ending due to the no more longer light from the sun 
says, and they did live by watchfires and the thrones, the palaces of crowned kings, the huts, the habitations of all things which dwell were burnt for beacons. Cities were consumed and men were gathered around their blazing homes to look once more into each other's face. So he's talking about how man would have been craving light so much that he's burning his cities just so that he can look at each other. And the, the, the poem goes on into some just terrible spiral downward into the, till the last two men on earth look at each other and, and after in the light of fire and shriek because of the horror of each other's face and these last two people on earth die. It says the world was void. The populace and the powerful was a lump, seasonless, herbless, treeless, manless, lifeless, a lump of death. A chaos of hard clay. (coughs) Well, guess what? Knowing and understanding God's word gives us hope. It gives us hope. It helps us to realize that God is at the helm of this cosmic dirt clod that we are sitting on right now that is flying through space at 87,000 miles, I'm sorry, 67,000 miles per hour. God is at the helm of this cosmic dirt clod flying through space at 67,000 miles per hour. And we find his promise of this, his covenant with Noah, his covenant with mankind. What we know is, maybe you don't know it, but it's called the Noahic covenant with all mankind. And we read about it this morning here in Genesis 8, verse 20, and we're going to read through the verses uh, 1 through 17 of chapter 9 as well. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Remember, God has allowed Noah and his family and the animals to come off of the ark. And what does he first do (coughs) with some of these animals? He sacrifices them. He gives them as offerings on the altar. And says, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And if you recall, God's explanation of why he was never going to revert to this again is because it was, it, it would be tempted to. It would be a viable option. Why? For man's heart is wicked. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. If only the people of 1816 had read that verse, right? While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And we'll come back to that, but we pick up in chapter 8, verse 1. I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered 
See, God's command here is the resetting of man's responsibility as was given originally. To go and to be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth. God had originally blessed Adam and Eve in this way. In Genesis 1, 28 through, uh, verse 28, you might recall, that God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all of the animals then he lists there. Now notice, there's not a repeat here of uh, subdue and have dominion over. That doesn't mean that we don't still have a responsibility over the earth as God has given us as his image bearers, but I think sin brought a complication to man's calling over the animals. Uh, they, weren't no, they were no longer naturally cooperative with the coming of sin on the earth. And so subduing it was going to be, subduing them was going to be another matter. But that's just on its side. But pick up in verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So, so here we see man is finally given the permission to eat meat. Sorry, Peta. We have that permission. You know, <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever gone around like an icebreaker or something like that and asked, what point in biblical history would you ever want to live? And every now and then you have this kind of righteous saint who's like, before sin entered the world. You know, this is a person that would, you know, when they're asked, what person in history would you ever want to meet? They would be the one to say, Jesus, okay? Uh, but most of us, like, we're like sometime after Genesis 9, right? Okay? Because I like meat, okay? Grilling, killing and grilling and chilling as it's grilling. That's, that's what I'm about. We see here Noah and his family and all these animals kind of getting off the ark, and it reminded me as a youth pastor. You get to the amusement park with this bus, you know, this van load and a couple, whatever, how many students coming out and, and adult leaders and things like that, and you get to the gate and you're like, okay, here's the rules, okay? Uh, stay with this number of people, buddy up, meet, we're going to be meeting at this time. That's kind of like what I picture going on here at this scene. They're getting off the ark, and it's like, here's the rules here, folks. You know, for, for me as a youth pastor, it's like, I need to go home with as many of you as I came here with. And I don't think any families are going to appreciate me swapping people out if, I'm, if I have less of you. Come back here at this time. I need to make sure they're here. And I think in some ways, God's kind of like, okay, animals, people, here's how it's going to work. You need to survive. Mankind was dependent on God setting the new rules for his world, and there's only so many of you, he's thinking, I guess. God's providing ground rules for relationships between animals and humans and humans with each other. Mankind has always and will always be dependent on God. And I want to challenge you with that this morning to realize that you're dependent on God's provision. You're dependent on God's provision. This may be why the naturalist, the, the person that just wants to rule out any supernatural at all, this might be the, the primary motivation there. A desire to be independent. 
a desire to be able to rebel because you're not rebelling against anything. How many of us in raising, our, you know, our two-year-olds or, or with your, with, uh, working with a, a grandchild, uh, a two-year-old, you know, that they get to that age where you kind of show them something, and then they're just, what do they do? They grab it, doesn't matter what it is, I do it, I do it. I want to be independent. I want to do it on my own. There's an, there's an understanding here that we are dependent on God's provision. First of all, we are dependent on God providing us with safety. Okay? It is, it is only because of him that we can trust that as the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Gravity is a rule, but we don't know why. We don't know why. We don't want know why we don't go spinning off into the universe. That, that, that we might just come around the sun one more time and get whipped out into oblivion. Whether we realize it or not, we are dependent on God. Uh, there's, been de- there's been seasons of change, you know, like the, the, the year without a summer of 1816. There's been famines. There's been local floods. But the promise is that this, this, that God is not going to allow the earth to turn into a dead wasteland. God is not going to allow the sun to go dark. Now, that does not mean we should, we should cons- just forget about our responsibility to steward the earth as we've been given it. But we are dependent on him for his provision. And a lot of these scare tactics that we are going to destroy this earth starts with the idea that there is no God. That there is no primary individual personality who's holding our world together. We see this new paradigm for animals that fear and dread of humans should be upon them. And I've wondered, here's my wonderings here, okay? How hostile to man were pre-flood animals, right? We we know from, from the conditions before the flood that violence had filled the earth where God says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. We'll see in verse 5 that, that God requires the life of man or beast when they take the life of man. I have to wonder, imagine people being hunted by lions the same way that a, a herd of buffalo is today. I, I mean, today you see primarily animals are turned to violence in, in, in uh, defense when humans are involved. Imagine if the animal kingdom in the sinful condition that came with sin prior to the flood was like, let's go round up some humans. You know? Soft on the outside, crunchy on the inside, you know. Now, now some believe this just made animals harder to hunt. You know, they might have come and eaten out of a human's hand before, but now the human's like looking for meat. Um, But, I think it's possible that the animals were no longer willing to hunt people. <laughs> Could explain why in the Black Hills, even though there's mountain lions, there is no recorded, verified instance of a mountain lion attacking a human. Even though there's herds of wolves that will try to take down a moose, we have no verified instance of a herd of wolves taking down a human. 
Just interesting to me. I guess sharks blow my theory out of the water. Th- that's also why I do not swim in the ocean. No. If it's uh, like over my stomach, I'm out. So, so we see God providing safety. We also see God providing guidance. This, this strange statement, but you shall not eat flesh with the, its life, that is its blood. God will, will further clarify this in the Mosaic Law, which, which in many ways gave Israel their culture, gave the Hebrews their culture uh, that pointed them away from the pagan culture that they had lived within in Egypt for 400 some odd years. So, but we see this developed in Leviticus 17 where it says, for the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature. For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And that's pretty strong about this liquid. It's not that blood is sacred. Okay, because, because in Deuteronomy 15, it says, uh, speaking of animals only, you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. It's kind of like stay away from it. Okay, I'm going to give you another one of my opinions here, okay, about this blood thing. I don't believe blood is inherently powerful, but the temptation is that, that in living independent from life, we seek life from other sources. In, I'm sorry, in living independent from God, we seek life from other sources. And it's a very common prag- pagan practice to consume blood to increase one's own life force. A commentary on the Torah that I read talked about the Chaldeans of that day. Uh, shortly after the flood, the race of Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that, that would drink blood. And, and part of that is because they believed it was giving them more life force. It was giving, they were consuming the life force of whatever it was that that blood came from. Many times tribal conflicts or genocides between animistic tribes, it's not just about we want your land, we want your stuff. It's about we want your life force. We want your spiritual life force for ourselves. I even read a little bit of, I don't recommend this, but some of the modern writings of a witch who had her blog online and she was talking about the power that, is fa- that she has found in her spells from using blood along with them. God, I believe, is intent on keeping his children aware of the fact that he is the source of life. And don't give in to this temptation of thinking that you're going to find more life, more life force from other sources. Like it or not, you are totally dependent on God's provision for life and for guidance through all these other Options, all these other ideas that people have of get life from this, get life from that. We are dependent completely on God's provision, and He is capable, He is powerful. As Creator, He is the sustainer of the universe, and we don't have to find life in anything else. He is our protector. You know, in this 1816 year without a summer, one scientist in Italy even predicted that the sun would go out on July 18th. 
that, that was his prediction. July 18th, 1816, as a scientist, I am predicting the sun will go out. And his prediction caused riots and suicides along with religious fervor all over Europe. We don't have to listen to that stuff when we know what God has said, when we know what God is capable of, when we know God's loving character. We don't even have to worry about uh, what life will be like after this physical life when we know our God. What does it look like to realize you're dependent on God's provision? The facts of pain and death are unbearable without the knowledge of God's grace that's available. The fact that we are hurling through space at 67,000 miles per hour is anxiety-causing without knowing that we've always depended on God. And we will always be able to. Salvation itself begins with seeing our need for God's righteousness. And that is one of the biggest things that stands in the way of people. I need to feel like I've got this on my own. I need to feel like I am sufficient in myself. But we've always been dependent on God. We've always been dependent on Him giving us His righteousness for ourselves. And growth in Christ begins with our surrender to God's plan for our lives, seeking to live life in His grace and in His truth, in faith and obedience, seeking to live life for His glory. We have always been dependent on God's purpose for ourselves. And the sooner we embrace that, the sooner we grow. The sooner we grow in that grace. Well, we see the discussion of life and blood brings us to the uniqueness of human life. So we see, pick up in verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Let me say that again. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. That, that, that uh, fill the earth and increase greatly on the earth, we're going to come back to that uh, in the story of the Tower of Babel. Because that's not what they were doing. But God makes it very clear here, saying it twice again. What I challenge you here from these verses this morning is to recognize the value of human <laughs> life. The fifth commandment that we have is you shall not murder killing a person without just cause. We don't call killing an animal murder. Okay? We don't call killing plants murder. Plants don't even have life the way that an animal has life, the way that a person has life. These are all things that, that, you know, a lot of people these days want to equate together. 
but, but we are commanded to not murder, to not kill a person without a just godly cause. It also doesn't say thou shall not kill. It says thou shall not murder. Okay, let God define these things. Anyways, the reason given for defining murder is because God made man in his own image. No matter how much our representation of God is marred by sin, we are still made in his image. You know, we've seen scenes um, of, of in other countries where angry mobs topple statues. They're not anti-statue. They're not like, get rid of these statues. You know, they're angry at the person that the statue represents. They're tearing down the image of that ruler, that leader. And similarly, the men and women are made in the image of God that represents their creator. And that's what adds value. That is what gives value to every human life being made in the image of God. No matter how inconvenient, no matter how burdensome, no matter how much of a challenge it is to help them. And and folks, listen to this. As we get older, we need to hear this. Because we can get really, well, as we get older, we can tend to think that our value is in what we contribute. And the more people need to come around, the more people need to take care of us, the more people need to help us, we can tend to think I'm less and less and less valuable. That is not the case. That's not what God says here. People are valuable because they're made in the image of God. And if you get to that point in your life, you need to receive it. Because they're not honoring you only. They're honoring the life that you have being made in God's image. You know, when, when Josh Kiepo lost his life this past week, the significance of a man made, it, w- it was the significance of this was not just a man of being lost who's a husband and a father and a son and a brother. It's the loss of a man made in God's image. And our ultimate comfort in this is in the fact that he is in the presence of his Savior because God remade him as well. But I want you to note here, a person that takes a human life, what does it say? They will be held accountable by God. There will be a reckoning that he will require often working through human representatives, true, but, but even, you know, unjust rulers refusing to carry out the responsibility of this mandate, allowing people to be killed without consequence or killing people without just cause. They will give a reckoning to God. People like Che Cavera, the Central American Marxist leader who said, we don't need proof to execute a man. We only need proof that it's necessary to execute him. You know, this is a guy that people wear T-shirts, you know, with him on there. Che. He will give a reckoning before God for those actions, for that philosophy. 
There will be a reckoning with God for unjust rulers. And what does it matter to recognize the value of human life? This is why end-of-life decisions for the elderly, legislatures, doctors, these things are important to God. And those that make those decisions will give a reckoning to him. God says, I will require a reckoning. No one matter what government decides regarding abortion as a woman's right, there will be a reckoning for the taking of human life. You know, uh, I contacted Joe Donnelly some time ago. Uh, just among, you know, I'm sure thousands of people who had that day asking, please defund Planned Parenthood. The letter I got back stated something to the extent of that, uh, saying his support for a woman's fundamental right for choose will always guide his descendants. For his sake, I'm glad he is no longer in Washington or no longer will be because God will require a reckoning for his support of abortion rights while a senator. That's what God says. I will require a reckoning. And as a society, I think of the words of Mother Teresa, we must not be surprised when we hear of murders, of killings, of wars, of hatred. If a mother can kill her own child, what is left but for us to kill each other? Human life has value in itself because we are made in the image of God. That's where it starts. When God formally announces his covenant with all of mankind, in verse 8 and following, when he says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be caught off from the, by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So, so aside from the fact that we can still grill, we can now kill, grill, and chill, and, and not having to worry about being hunted by coyotes or something like that, the biggest aspect of the Noahic covenant is that God will never again destroy the earth by a flood of water. And the covenants usually, covenants usually have a sign that stands as a reminder. We read about that in verse 12. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Then when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. So I want to challenge you here. Lastly, God's flooding of the earth should cause you 
to remember God's covenant of grace. It's in contrast with what he could do. Now remember his covenant of grace with us. His promised grace of withholding judgment by the flood. And that sign of the rainbow in the clouds. Some believe that, this, that the, the, the idea that was being communicated to Noah at that time is like a hunter or even a warrior taking his bow and setting it on the wall. When I've set my bow in the clouds, he says. And this is a common grace. It's given freely to all living creatures. This is a rare example of a covenant with all of mankind not just a privileged people. In some ways, you can imagine that, that, that people from that point forward, just as we have different flood epics that are described in different cultures from that point forward, there would have almost been like this flood PTSD, and every time it would have rained, is it going to happen again? And people would have known, no, it's not. It was funny because I, I was making, I make observations as when I first studying a passage and I kind of make that as conversation with the Lord speaking in, in uh, uh, second person to him and things. And, and I, I saw in my notes under observations of this passage, you didn't ask permission to make a covenant with all people. Where's the free will in that? But anyways, and I also wrote, never again there shall be a flood to destroy the earth. You certainly leave open the door for other types of judgment, one day by fire. Let me ask you, you know, this, this, this natural phenomena of a rainbow in the sky, you know, there's, there's, there's moisture in the air, and the light hits that moisture, and it refla- refracts, and you see the prism of light. The light is divided up into the light, the different colors of its prism, was light refraction created for the rainbow? No, it was, it was always there. But what had always been there was used to visually show God's grace. And in the same way, God's providence, God's providence that is involved in your life before you know him is always there. It becomes visible when he opens your eyes to it. And once you... He, once you come to know him, you're able to, to put a face to his loving kindness that has always been drawing you to his grace. And you should be reminded regularly of God's saving grace in the lives of others that you want to see saved. In other words, when you see, you know, it's there, there but by the grace of God go I. I want them to know you, Lord, but that's where I was. That's as blind as I was. That's as deaf as I was. That's as dead as I was. In the mistakes and the triumphs of your children and your grandchildren, you should be reminded regularly of God's grace for you. We have this tendency to think of God's grace for us and think I'm only where I'm at because of God's grace. So who am I to not step in? And solve this for them. No. (laughs) That's when we become an enabler. We need God's wisdom to know when they've got to come to see that they can do nothing. They can move no more forward without God's grace in their life, just as it has been for you. 
pray for God's covenant grace for them. Point them to God's covenant grace, the covenant that he made with you to show you his saving grace. You know, the sign of the covenant with Noah was a rainbow. The sign of God's old covenant with Israel through Moses was circumcision. The sign of our new covenant with God is the cross. It's the cross. It's Christ's blood. I'll speak more to this when we celebrate communion together this morning. But understand that just as this covenant began with the sacrifice of blood, the new covenant that we have with God, still benefiting from the Noahic covenant, is in Christ's blood. Poured out for us. For, for, for our covenant grace with God. Let's bow our heads. Father, It's astounding to to think about all of the grace that we walk in without even knowing it. To think about all of the provision that we have from you without even knowing it. To think of the disasters that you hold back. Even as judgment that we and this earth deserve. And this without us even knowing it, Father. Lord, convict us forever thinking that that your grace is just something that we need when we screw up. Or forgive us forever thinking that your provision is just something that we need when we can't go it on our own. But Lord, you have created a relationship with you for us where we are constantly dependent on your grace and on your provision for every moment of our lives. Lord, we don't even understand the the nature of what holds our atoms together. But we're told that in Christ, all things are held together. Father, I, I pray that we would surrender our need for understanding everything. I pray, Lord God, that we would surrender our need for having as much control over as much as we can. And that you'd allow us to celebrate your grace and your provision that we walk in every moment of our lives and be grateful for it. And direct others to that, Lord. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, I want to encourage you to to hang out with us and enjoy uh, some, some more worship and celebrating communion together this morning.